This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. If land prices moved in tandem with interest rates, land sale prices would be down 30%. That has not happened, of course, which leads many to wonder, will interest rates begin to stall farm growth moving forward? What are the top producers doing well that others are not in a time when interest expense is rising for many operations? Plus, in the second half of this week's show, we have an interesting conversation about a time when it seemed the future farmers of America, the FFA, was perhaps going out of business. Those are our topics for this week's Farm in the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. We finished our harvest a couple of weeks ago, and we're already planning for next season. Part of that plan includes Pivot Bio Proven 40 OS. It provides my corn with nitrogen when it needs it, no matter the weather. That predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 On Seed gives growers more flexibility with their nitrogen plants. It's the first on-seed nitrogen, and all U.S. corn growers have access to the technology. Pivot Bio products contain naturally occurring microbes that fix nitrogen from the air and provide it directly to corn plants all season long. As you make plans for next season, I hope you'll learn more. Just contact your local sales rep or go to pivotbio.com. Alan Savage is the Senior Vice President of Corporate Credit and Operations at Farm Credit Services of America and Frontier Farm Credit. Interest rates are a hot topic these days with most farm operators and lenders, as many see their interest expense beginning to move higher. We discussed how and if those rates are impacting land prices, rental rates, and expansion in the ag sector. Whether you may be borrowing money right now or not, what are the key factors ag lenders are watching with operations to determine if now is the time to expand or stay put? Here's our conversation. Fallon, every year is unique, I suppose. But as we end up 2023 into 2024, I think interest rates have certainly gone up. People have that on their mind. The conversations that you have with farmers now, how does interest figure into those conversations? Maybe I should say. Absolutely. Really good question. So we're coming off of three years of record earnings. And what that has allowed is producers to really build up their balance sheet from a liquidity perspective. And so ironically, we have a lot of producers who aren't borrowing money. So interest rates are, quite frankly, really not a concern of theirs. On the other hand, we have borrowers who also have some um, longer term fixed rate debt that's in the low threes and fours. They're sitting in a really good spot as well. Where we're seeing pressure or pinch points are those producers who are looking to expand. They're looking to buy additional ground or additional equipment, or maybe they're looking to add to their cow herd. That's where the interest rates are really starting to cause a little bit of a pinch. And that's where it's putting a little bit of a lid on their buying power. As we think about that, you know, land prices figure into that. And I think for a while we have not seen any reduction in land prices. Is that because we had enough, I'm going to say stored up money, so to speak? Are we beginning to, in a sense, 
use that on inputs and now we are seeing those land prices plateau. What do you see across the country? Yeah, exactly that. You know, we saw again record high uh, land prices, but that is starting to to maybe cool a little bit. I think plateau is a good way to say that. Um, as we think about producers who are looking to expand and buy additional ground, I'm going to go back to their purchase power has, has softened a little bit with the higher interest rates. When we saw those with interest rates, you know, around 4.5, 4.75, they had borrowing capacity up to $4,700 an acre and could still cash flow that at $300 an acre. Now, with 8.5% interest rate, that buying power has come down to $3,200 an acre. And so borrowers are having to be strategic. They're taking a look at how much of this can I put from a debt perspective and still cash flow it? And how much of it do I need to use my liquidity and my balance sheet to offset some of those higher prices? There's still a lot of uh, interest out there, but I would say there's been a short supply of ground for sale. I want to flip this, though, for a moment. For those that maybe have some cash in the bank, what do they need to think about about earning more money on that uh, that had once upon a time not really had that much value now they can get some more value. Yeah, absolutely. You know, investment rates are still are higher. Um, again, it really comes back down to where do you see long term potential and where do you want to put that that money to work for you? As we think about the expanding protein sector, talk through that for a moment. What are the opportunities out there? Beef numbers are certainly down. Pork and, and poultry. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, great question. It's it's really a tale of what I'd say two cities. As you mentioned on the beef side, the herd is at the lowest it's been since the 70s. Um, the market is not slowing down from a demand perspective. And so while we would have anticipated the herd to be growing at a little bit of a faster clip than it is, it really hasn't. Even though we're starting to see, again, continued high demand for beef all signals ago that that should be an area where we start to see expansion over the next one, two, and three years with that herd supply. On the flip side with the swine, we've seen some really drastic, significant losses this last year. And so really, we need to probably see that herd contract or come back a little bit, take some supply off the market. That's been slower than we anticipated. And so really, ultimately, we're probably going to see some expansionary efforts on the beef side and some contraction over the next year to 18 months on the swine side. Depending on the age of the producer, they may not have had a very large number in their their interest expense column. That number may be growing. Are there some things that we need to think about, no matter our age, because that number is going to be bigger going forward? 100%. Um, we continue to coach and counsel borrowers, know your break-evens. Where are you at on a cost of production on a per-unit basis? Um, it really doesn't matter if you don't understand what your cost of production is. It really doesn't matter what your interest rate is. So we're consistently coaching, no matter what your age and where you're at in your producer cycle, make sure you understand what your cost of production is on a per unit basis. That will give you a lot more um, knowledge moving into if you want to expand, if you want to take a look at buying additional assets, all of those will be important for you as you go in to talk to your lender. Those conversations for 2024 Are they similar or how much have they changed from years past? Yeah, we're very optimistic on 2024, but we're, we're again, we're we're cautioning producers to not let the last three years of high profitability to lose that sharpened pencil. Make sure that you understand what your cost of production is, understand what you want to be from a, a, you know, 
uh, expansionary efforts. Um, what does that look like to you and your operation? Um, but we're, we're very optimistic on 2024. As we sharpen the pencil, so to speak, are there certain areas where we tend to overlook more than others? Where should I be sharpening the pencil the most in these times? Family living. A lot of times, you know, when, when times are good, that's where you probably see family living not quite as, as tight as it probably should be. Um, but inflation is real and it is hitting, you know, every sector. And that's one area that we see is probably gets a little bit looser is that family living. I'm reminded of the 80s when we got one gift at Christmas. Uh, that sounds like that kind of discussion here for just a moment. Well, we, we'll hope we don't go to that point, though. I'm not sure we'll get quite there. But, yeah, I think it's always worth a, a, a pretty uh, a, a stringent eye as we think about those expenses. Absolutely. You know, you obviously work with a lot of different producers and everyone is different, but I am interested what uh, makes the top producers stand out? What are they doing and doing well that helps them succeed more times than not? I'm going to sound like a broken record. They know their cost of production. They know their financials in and out. Um, They have a marketing plan. They understand their marketing plan. They're diligent about their marketing plan. They also understand how to use debt effectively. You know, debt can be your friend if you use it wisely. Um, And we see those that truly understand not only what their break-evens are, um, they understand what their expense structure looks like, they understand their financial acumen. Um, Again, they've got a really diligent marketing plan that they're following through on. I like what you said about using your debt effectively. Talk about what that looks like. Are there any certain ratios or numbers that you like to see, or how can I use debt in a way to help me and not hinder me long term. Yes, absolutely. So when we think about debt, we really ultimately like to come back to the cash flow. What is your payment? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, um, just taking a straight LTV, you know, sometimes isn't going to be effective for you. It's going to give you too much leverage for your operation. So we generally like to back into that and say, what's your payment and what can you afford Based on your margin and your break even, what can you afford? Because that can look drastically different from one producer to the next. So we focus heavily in on the cash flow. And then what's your short term safety net? What's your liquidity? You know, what do you have, you know, essentially kind of a backstop in the times where margins maybe are inverted? So those are the top two things that we generally like to look at and coach on when we talk to customers. Any projections on interest rates going forward? The Fed seems to say we're going to be somewhat stable, maybe one more rent increase or one more rate increase. What do you see? We're not in the business to prognosticate interest rates, but I think we're gonna we're probably gonna follow along that same as we're probably gonna hold steady with where we're at right now. Um, again, it really comes back down to um, interest rates can be um, very impactful for some, but not impactful for others. It all comes down to what your break even is. Do you feel that the land sale price and even rental the rates then just mirror what's going on with that marketplace, or have they decoupled and are somewhat independent of one another? Interestingly enough, they have decoupled to some degree. If you were to look at where interest rates are, in theory, land prices should be thirty percent less than what they are right now, but that's not what we're seeing, and that really comes back down to the people that are purchasing the vast majority of the ground have a significant land base right now that frankly doesn't have a lot of leverage on it. So that gives them a lot of opportunity um, from an equity standpoint to lean into that other ground. And so, again, when you have a short supply of ground and people that are pretty hungry to buy it, it's really decoupled from that perspective. And probably will remain that way until we, in a sense, eat through that excess that they have built up. Is that what we would see in for land values? 
I think that's going to be a combination of it. And we're just going to continue to see what comes on the market. Um, Again, as we think about long-term legacy, there's always going to be a high demand for existing producers to grow their land base uh, with where they're at. Fallon, I'm interested for those that maybe feel they can't expand their land base. What types of things do you counsel them on? How can I increase my operation without necessarily increasing my land? Uh, Because ultimately we're wanting to hopefully generate more revenue for my family and my operation. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of niche areas and, and different livestock opportunities that have, have come to play in the last several years, whether it's, you know, putting up a finishing barn, um, other ways that you can take a look at increasing your revenue stream. Um, but ultimately what we want to coach and counsel on too is be the most efficient producer that you can be. Take what you already have and make it be as efficient as you possibly can to extract as much revenue as you can out of that operation. Any other things we should be having top of mind as we head into another year? Again, broken record. Just make sure that you understand what your break-evens are. Have a really solid marketing plan. Um, This next year, as things start to tighten up a little bit, um, understanding what that plan is and where you're at from a break-even will serve you well. Fallon, I appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thank you. In the second half of this week's show, I visited with someone that many former FFA members know. Dr. Larry Case served as National FFA Advisor during the 1980s, 90s, and early 2000s. He retired, but perhaps got even busier in work with the FFA at the local, state, and national levels. I recently caught up with him, and we talked about his time in FFA, including the 1980s, when it perhaps appeared the FFA might be going out of business. We discussed some of that history, plus a book he's been writing about his experiences. Dr. Larry Case joins me. Dr. Case, you have been around agriculture and ag education uh, for several years. Talk to people about what you've been doing since your role as National FFA Advisor, because that goes back several times you've been in. I'm going to put in air quotes retirement, but you've still been very busy. Well, I uh, was in Hawaii and I received a, a call from David Miller who was on the alumni council. They had what to call alumni council at that time, and that would have been 2011. So he said, I want you to, I'd like for you to consider putting your name in for running for the council, uh, FFA alumni council. And I said, well, okay, I'll think about it. And so I did and won uh, a spot on the council. And uh, so that started a six-year stint uh, of, Three years on the council, and then I ran for president-elect and won president-elect, which is another three years. So, yeah, we, and then, and and to top that all off, uh, I was uh, asked to be on the Virginia FFA Foundation Board and the Virginia FFA Association Board. So I was doing that, and then I was also president of the the local alumni association for Spotsylvania County. So after saying all that, uh, I said, you know, but, you know, I'll just say, well, how did I do all that? I don't know. But anyway, at the end of my term, um, uh, meaning my president-elect and then president and then past president term at three years, I retired from everything. So I got off all the boards and stuff. And so then I just uh, focused more on church work and that kind of thing. So, You've done all this work, not only for ag education, but then after this with the FFA alumni, as you mentioned, 
Do you think that a lot of people don't realize the opportunities for FFA alumni? So many of us came through the FFA organization, but perhaps we don't think about, well, how can I get involved or what can I do? And it, some of it's dependent upon where we live as well. I think I think that's probably true, but I'll also say, and I'm not trying to blame anybody here when I say this, I don't know that the ag teachers know exactly how to manage uh, manage uh, volunteers, perhaps. Uh, and I remember as an ag teacher that I had doubts about well how I could do it. I was so busy doing stuff that I didn't know why. I thought, boy, that's one more thing I've got to do. But if you work it right, it's an investment in time to help uh, broaden the the program out. So, no, I don't think people stop and think about that. Uh, I'm sure some do, uh, and uh, they should get credit for doing that. But, but uh, yeah, they there's a lot of opportunity for both volunteerism and for ag teachers to gain a lot of uh, uh, capacity to make a difference, positive difference in the lives of their students. You're right that a lot of ag advisors have a full plate. So if I'm listening to this and I am, and, and we should mention, to be an alumni member, you don't have to be have been a past member. But if I am interested in this, those individuals could take a lot of the load and do a lot of that work just in a sense with the blessing of the advisor, correct? That's correct. And uh, I would quickly add that the, the board of directors of FFA saw the need to broaden that name, and it's now known as the FFA Alumni and Supporters. Uh, I can give you a personal example where that was important. My sister-in-law was not an alumni. She wanted to help FFA, but she didn't feel comfortable joining the FFA alumni. And when we did that, she was just to join immediately and was happy to do so. So, yeah, that's uh, that's that's just, uh, you know, there's people out there that want to do some things. And sometimes all you need to do is to put out a clarion call or even just ask them. Let's talk about another project that you have been working on, and that is you've been asked to put some of these experiences down in a book uh, that will be coming out later on. But where do things stand uh, right now with the book? Well, quickly, I would say that my wife, uh, when she was alive, was saying to me on a regular basis, you need to write a book. And I would get the same feedback from some people after I would tell one of my stories about what happened in my life, uh, that type thing. They knew you need to write a book. Well, Joy passed away in 2020, and so I was able to focus time and energy on evolving or developing a book. And it's my autobiography is now in draft form, and it's being edited, and we expect to have a copy of the book or the available or not a copy, but the book available sometime this winter. And the title of the book is A Thread of Blue Corduroy. And then the subtitle is My Faith Journey from Stent, Missouri to Washington, D.C. And for those who kind of wonder how we got to where we are today, I think that the chapters that I have in there on my career 
and the type of things that we were able to accomplish would give them a large insight as to what what happened earlier in order to broaden the basis for agricultural education and FFA to serve a broader range of students. In addition, there's a chapter in there I called uh, Moments to Remember, and that's a lot of stories, and I, I predict that that will be a popular chapter. The rest of it is more or less uh, uh, about me and my life. I was started as a, when I was born, was to, uh, and uh, talked about ra- being raised on a farm, and then I talked about school days and college days and, and marriage, uh, love, marriage, and children. I think is what I called it, and uh, and so I hope the people enjoyed at least parts of it. There's so much we can cover, but I do want to take just a moment to focus on one piece, and I've heard you speak of it before. When you became national advisor, the 1980s were were not great for farming. I believe 1987 is when membership hit a trough, and at that point we didn't know it was a trough. We thought it could keep going down, but there were things that had begun to happen, and and there were others involved, but you were there in the, the middle of this. What happened in the 1980s when the farm crisis was going on, and how did FFA climb out of that to now approaching a million members in FFA, which has to seem mind-boggling to you when you were in the middle of the 80s? Well, I knew that we were, if we kept the trend going, that we would be out of business uh, as ag educators. And and the the membership got down in the low low 300,000s. That seemed like a lot to a lot of people, but we had a high of 510,000, and we were struggling with budgets and, and that type thing. And what, uh, what we really did is we had a national study done by the uh, National Research Council Board on Agriculture that basically said you need to modernize, you need to change the definition of agriculture to include the broad array of occupations on both the input and the output side of the farm and and modernize and, and keep rolling. And basically, uh, we supplemented that with a lot of workshops and, and national conferences around such things as ag science, that kind of thing. And uh, we had uh, developing teaching materials that we had not um, uh, tests before, such as animal welfare, clean water, much broader than production agriculture. And that's how I think that we, and we provided money and funding for states to, to through a Kellogg grant, to uh, take this information and really change the complexion of agricultural education. I was uh, uh, elated when uh, when the uh, director of the project, uh, not the project, but uh, the, the liaison with the Kellogg Foundation said to me, Larry, you told me you would change agricultural education. I believe you did. Well, I can't take all the credit for that, but I do believe that agriculture education did change and realized that we had to change and it was that it turned out and it would turn out to be good. As you go to a national convention these days, does it amaze you of what it has become and perhaps what grew out of some of those conversations in the 80s? 
Uh, an absolute yes to your question, but I, I smile and think about the first conventions I, where I was national advisor in Kansas City, and we thought we had a big crowd when we had seven or 8,000 kids and jackets and so forth and so on. And, and it's grown today from the 2023-96 convention of having 73,000 people in attendance in, by the way, a football stadium filled to capacity relative to the area that we had in that, in that auditorium. It's just amazing to me. Dr. Case, I appreciate the time. My pleasure. As we close out this broadcast, you are probably hearing us close to the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope it's been a good one for you and a time when we can all say thanks to God, our family, friends, and others for all we have in life and that we will be determined to do things in return to help others. Also, a special thanks to those who make these broadcasts possible. Tom Brand, Chrissy Reinert, Brandilyn Twellman, Tom DeLack, plus everyone at Farm Journal Media and my family and friends. I appreciate your help and say thanks for all you do. And I appreciate you listening to our shows as well. Remember, you can hear these shows at farmingthecountryside.com or on many podcast platforms, and you can always go back and catch some of our past shows and find topics of interest. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot BioProven 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com.